I love you. There's always a certain moment of panic when you're standing in the front here, front row, with the lights down. This, plat- this plexiglass platform creates an optical illusion, like there's nothing on the other side. And I have this momentary panic that somebody has run off with my notes. <laughs> but uh, such is not the case. On September 6, 1986, it's a day that remains a remarkable event in my professional career as a hospital administrator. I was working in a hospital in Yakima in my first administrative position, and it was a hospital that was losing money. And we were commissioned to negotiate an agreement with the registered nurses at the hospital. And our corporate office in Seattle told us we had to negotiate what is called a no-net-gain contract. A no-net-gain contract means that you play shell games at the bargaining table, where you give money here and you take it away there. And the net effect is that there's no increase in salary. The nurses, understandably, weren't pleased by that. Fairly upset, in fact, and so they went out on strike that lasted for two weeks. That strike ended on September 6, 1986. It was the first strike of its type in what would begin what was to be a series of strikes in the Pacific Northwest in hospitals, because most hospitals were in fairly difficult financial straits. Well, after the strike was over, our corporate office sent a a, uh, a man from uh, University of Colorado Boulder Business School named R. Wayne Boss. Kind of an ironic name. And he came to work with us to repair the damage to our work environment that had ca- come about as a result of the strike. When he came, he told us that the work environment we had, the relationships that we had before the strike were gone forever. We'd never get it back but that we didn't need to be a victim of that, that we could collectively design and build the kind of work environment that we wanted to have. We could restore fellowship. We could restore the relationship. I was intrigued by that. I was pursuing um, my uh, business degree at the time, and so I took an emphasis in what's called organizational dynamics, which was a new course of study at that time, and it's basically a study in how you get people to get along in an organization, in a group, to fulfill the mission, whatever that is. As Dr. Boss was talking, he said the things that we need to reestablish are um, effective communication and trust and integrity and the means by which we manage disagreement, manage conflict. What he described sounded a lot like things I had heard all my life from Bible studies and from pulpit sermons, and it sounded very familiar to me. And so I uh, was very much interested, and it it struck me that was interesting because I don't believe that Dr. Boss was a Christian, was a believer. Well, long story short, this process that we went through with Dr. Boss was very effective, and we were able to reestablish connection with the nurses, and I stayed there for another two years. And after that, I went to a hospital in Tacoma, And they had just narrowly averted a nurse's strike in the preceding year. And so I went through a similar process there. And after that, I went to um, another hospital headquartered in Seattle and did did the same work for a period of time. In 
June 1994, Sue and I and our family came to Albany. And I uh, was uh, um, accepted that position after Albany Hospital had just narrowly averted a strike in 1993. And I remember sitting in the parking lot thinking, I'm going to be here two years, three max, and then I'll move on to something else. That was 24 years ago, last June 1st. This uh, part of the country has a, has a way of uh, sticking with a person. And from time to time, during that time, and especially since, I've been asked by people, well, what exactly is it that appeals to you about this kind of work? Why is it that you become engaged in other people's fights? The answer to that is number one in your notes, if you have your bulletin, if you can get people to manage disagreements in a manner that, without destroying trust, there is, in my view, nothing more that you can do more effectively promote the success of that mission, no matter what it is. No matter what it is. Get people to, to manage disagreement, manage their stuff without destroying trust. There's nothing that you can do that will more effectively promote success. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Romans 12, 14, Insofar as it lies within you, live at peace with all men. Our ability to manage disagreement while maintaining a relationship, maintaining trust, is a hallmark of what it means to be Christian. If we manage disagreement as a church without destroying trust, we will be more effective at fulfilling the Great Commission. If we manage disagreement as, as a family without destroying trust, we will have grasped what it means to have a godly home. If we manage disagreement in our marriage without destroying trust, we will more effectively depict the relationship between Christ and his church. What's true in Christians is also true in the world. All truth is God's truth. If we manage disagreement in not-for-profit corporations without destroying trust, we will more effectively fulfill our, honor our donors' um, contribution and more effectively fulfill the mission of that organization. In business, if we manage disagreement without destroying trust, we will more effectively fulfill our objective, our business objective, and maintain quality. Years ago, it was my privilege to work with a metal fabrication company in another part of the state. They manufactured things like traffic boxes and, and components for mainframe computers. Their tolerances in their production were measured down to thousands of an inch tolerance. Very precise manufacturing. The company had two sections, and on the main floor, the bottom floor, were the machines. And the machines were staffed by guys who were mostly um, men and women, uh, mostly um, blue-collar. Many of them had not graduated from high school. Some of them were immigrants. And then above the main floor was this kind of platform that was enclosed in glass. And it had what I called the suits. These were guys who wore white collars to work. Most of them had college degrees. Some of them had graduates of technical school. And their job was to take a, a, um, 
customer's requirements for a part and convert that into computer code, and then that computer code was fed down into these machines on the, on the production floor. And the guys on the floor would feed metal into these machines, and the machines would bend, poke holes, and cut to manufacture the part that was required for the customer. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? I mean, what could go wrong with that? <laughs> well, plenty, as it turns out. Over time, small offenses and resentments had built up between the guys on the production floor and the guys up in this window. And they created a kind of class warfare between the two of them, and it became difficult, if not impossible, to solve problems. They had to be able to communicate to be able to manufacture things, and so what happened over time was whenever they made something, they had to make it two or three times. And it cre created a tremendous amount of waste. This company at that time was competing with Chinese manufacturers who could produce things much more cheaply. And so this company was on the verge of bankruptcy because of this waste in production. The story has a happy ending, established in large part due to the application of what I call Sunday school principles. And I'd like to share that with you, some of those principles found in the scriptures with you. Number two, in your notes for the Christian, the chief end of managing conflict is to glorify God. The chief end in managing conflict is to glorify God. This is true whether or not the person with whom you are having the disagreement believes it or, agree, or agrees with it or not. One might reasonably ask, well, why is there conflict? Why does God allow conflict to exist in the world? What's the point? There are a number of answers to, some, to such a question, and one of those might come from just my own foolishness or my sin nature that produces conflict. But one thing we know for sure is that the purpose of conflict is to glorify God. Jude, in his short epistle, discusses the conflict of apostasy in the church. And toward the end of the, of the chapter, the only chapter in the book, he says, Now unto him who, that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory. Be glory and majesty, and dominion, and power, both now and forever. Paul, and the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, describes a conflict within his own sin nature as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, and as an insolent man. And he contrasts that with the overwhelming grace extended to him by Jesus Christ. And as he's going through this description, he breaks out into a deeply profound hymn in 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 5, Peter in his first epistle describes the conflict that the believer has with the forces of evil in the world. And he calls to us to endurance and praises God in this brief hymn in 1 Peter 5.11. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. There are a number of such passages that can be found in the New Testament. And most of them have to do with 
discussion around a conflict or great challenge. So why do we suffer through conflict? We could also ask, why do we suffer through disease or cancer or accidents or financial loss? Lord, why was this man born blind? So that the works of God may be manifest, so that God would be glorified. Some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds very profound, very pious for a Sunday morning service. What practical benefit does that have? What does that have to do with resolving a conflict? Only this, the next time I'm in conflict with somebody and I'm tempted to defend my own rights and I'm tempted to be self-righteous and indignant, if I ask myself, how will God be glorified through this exchange, it will alter my thinking. It will change the way I think about how I approach this conflict, and that thinking will result in changed behavior. And I will conduct myself differently, diametrically, profoundly differently than I do when I'm defending my own rights. Number three in your notes, the objective in conflict is to manage it and not avoid it. Christians, nurses, people who do... um, Humanitarian work tend to avoid conflict. We don't want to rock the boat. There's a phenomenon in management theory called the Abilene Paradox. The Abilene Paradox is a kind of groupthink where a group of people working together will value consensus and agreement so greatly that they won't bring up any dissenting opinion, even if there is a good reason to. The phenomenon was the paradox was described by a guy named Jerry Harvey, and uh, he depicts it in a story of his own family in the 1960s when they were in Texas. Um, <clears throat> they were in a rural part of Texas, and there weren't roads, uh, paved roads at that time. There wasn't air conditioning. And the father, the mother, the son, and the son's wife were sitting on a porch on a hot August day in Texas. And the father says, well, let's go to Abilene and get some ice cream. And the rest of the family agrees. Okay, yeah, that's fine. So they get in this car, no pavement, no air conditioning, can't roll down the windows, drive to Abilene, which is two hours away, have ice cream that wasn't all that particularly good, and then drive the two hours back to their home. And when they finally get home, they get back on the porch, they have this huge fight. Why in the world did we do that? Whose stupid idea was that? And everybody looks at Dad, who had brought the subject up. Well, I didn't want to go either, he says. I was just trying to make conversation. I didn't think you'd all go along with it. (laughs) Abilene Paradox, where a group of people will do something that none of them agree with, or most of them disagree with, for the sake of consensus, because nobody wants to rock the boat. Conflict is like pain. It's a gift from God. It's necessary to help us avoid making foolish mistakes. Our constitution was established and bred in conflict. The Christian faith brought about earthquake changing change to the earth, to the world, through centuries of conflict. 
The great stories in literature all center, all focus around conflict. If you remember high school English, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself. Winston Churchill said that if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. In 1 Corinthians 1, a correction, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul depicts the working of the church as a body. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by the one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink unto one Spirit, for the body is not one member but many. He continues in that chapter describing how diverse the body is and how each member has a role to play in the functioning of that body. It is a seedbed for disagreement. It is a seedbed for conflict. And to achieve that unity that God desires for his church and his people, it is necessary to manage the conflict, to work through it, and to resolve it and not avoid it. Number four in your notes, get the log out of your eye. Get the log out of your eye. Matthew 7, and why do you behold the mote that is in your brother's eye, but do not consider the beam? The beams are these big pieces of wood up here that hold up the roof. Moat is a little sliver. You did not, uh, or how will you say to your brother, let me pull out the mote out of your eye, and behold, the beam is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to cast the mote out of your brother's eye. Last Saturday, Sue and I drove to Eugene. Sue went to visit the grandkids, and they came back last night. And we, were, we took Route 99 down because we like to see the farmlands on the way down. And so I took the same route back when I came back. And I was, as I was driving back to Albany, and I was looking out the window, I was contemplating what it must have been like to farm that land 100 years ago. Something I like to do when I'm traveling by myself. Let my imagination get away with me. As my imagination got away with me, my foot got heavier. And I was speeding. This fact was brought to my attention by a very nice young Oregon State trooper. (laughs) I haven't mentioned this to Sue yet, so don't anybody tell her. He says, um, sir, I stopped you because you were speeding. I said, yes, sir, I was going too fast. I was distracted by the beautiful countryside, and I was going too fast. I apologize. He said, well, let me see your insurance and your license. So I gave him my insurance card. I pulled out my wallet. My license was gone. I pulled everything out of my wallet, threw it on the car seat, it was gone. It was back on my desk in my office. I said, officer, I'm afraid I don't have my license. Have you ever had one of those days? <laughs> so he goes back to the car and he's, he's uh, contemplating, or I'm contemplating, how big the fine it is I'm going to get with his ticket. Speeding and no driver's license. He comes back to the window said, Mr. McIntosh, I'm not going to give you a ticket. Just slow down and have a good day. What I should have received from that officer was justice. 
Instead, what I received was mercy. You've all heard of the golden rule, treat other people as you would be treated. There's a corollary to that called the golden result. And the golden result means that we tend to be treated as we treat other people. If we blame others during a confrontation, if we get angry, if we become defensive, we will be met with angry and defensive behavior in kind. But if we acknowledge our failure, we acknowledge our weakness, we pull the beam out of our eye, we tend to be met with conciliatory, humble behavior in return. Not always, but we increase the likelihood. Consider what would have happened if I had defended my rights to this police officer. I am a tax-paying citizen. Why don't you leave me alone? Why don't you go out and chase the bad guys and quit wasting both of our time? What do you suppose would have happened if I had reacted that way? I'd be liking it writing a big check for a ticket. The golden result should be the standard operating procedure for those who cherish the gospel, who recognize the, the fact that our own sin was so great that it required Jesus Christ to descend from heaven and die on the cross for our failures. Such knowledge should drive our behavior in conflict and eliminate the need for self-righteous justification and the ability to acknowledge our own sin and our own failure. Number five, ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Most offenses that we encounter in life are best set aside and forgotten. There's ample scripture to support that. Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 17.14, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before the dispute breaks out. Above all, love one another deeply, Peter writes, for love overcomes a multitude of sins. This likely covers the vast majorities of offenses that you and I will encounter in our lifetime. So how do you decide which issues to let go and which you should confront? I would suggest three suggestions. Number one, number A, does it affect my relationship with that person? Therefore, if you are offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come offer your gift. It's worth noting here that this is an offense that another person has with me, not me with them. That I have an obligation to restore and to reconcile and to repair even if I haven't necessarily been the one to instigate the disagreement. Speak up. <clears throat> Number B, under five, does it, does it affect the testimony of the church? Does it affect the testimony of the church? If you, any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? 
And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more the things in this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do, not, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? When we first started our ministry in Africa, we decided to send a container to Sierra Leone. And there was a journal, a Christian journal, that showed up at church here and depicted a, a guy in Tacoma who had won a humanitarian award for sending containers all over the world. And so we thought, well, this is our guy. We'll have him broker our container for us because we'd never sent one before. <clears throat> and so, um, um, long story short, he lost the container. We didn't hear about it for six months. In the meantime, we had a third party come in and reinvest in another container, replace the funds that we'd lost, and shipped another container. But that thing sat down in Los Angeles, we came to find out later, for six months. And in the interim, we found out that this man had done similar disservice to other Christian ministries throughout the state. Number C in your notes, does it affect someone who cannot defend themselves? Does it affect someone who cannot defend themselves? The scripture has many references to our responsibility to advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. Many such passages are found in Proverbs. Here's one in Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor. So I struggled with this broker about what to do. Do I just take it on the chin? accept the loss, or do I pursue justice? I asked for counsel at the time about what I should do because it wasn't obvious. I did some research and found out where this gentleman attended church. He attended a church in Seattle, and the pastor of that church was a former Marine chaplain. And I called him up one day, and we bonded immediately. The guy had no tolerance for nonsense. I liked him right away. And I described the situation that I had in a conflict with a person from his church, and I referred him to this passage in 1 Corinthians about not resolving things in court. He was intrigued by that, had never actually heard of it being applied in a contemporary setting, and I asked him, I would be willing to submit myself to your authority if you would mediate this conflict between me and this person from your church. And he, was, he said, yeah, happy to do it, intrigued by the prospect. The broker, on the other hand, wanted nothing to do with it. And so it never happened that way. But the end of the story is, about two months later, I received a phone call in my office from Como TV in Seattle. And they sent a reporter down, and they sent a camera down, and they interviewed me. They took pictures of all my documents, and I described the situation I'd had with this guy. They went to several other people that he had misused. And I spoke with that Marine Corps chaplain pastor several months later, or several years later, I should say, and the guy never sent another container for anybody else ever use out of business. 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It wasn't up to me, it wasn't up to my responsibility. In another time, perhaps in a, in a few, uh, if I get the opportunity, I'd like to expand this discussion on conflict. I'd like to address strategies for approaching a disagreement in a way that maintains a relationship. Strategies for dealing with no. What happens when you ask somebody to do something and they say no? What are your options? Strategies for restoring relationship after a particularly challenging difficulty. In the meantime, I leave you with this benediction from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7. I'd like to bow, with, bow your heads with me as we contemplate this in conclusion. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be earnest and thoughtful people of prayer. Above all, love one another deeply because love overcomes a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Are you called to speak? Then speak as though speaking the very oracles of God. Are you called to serve others? Then do it in the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be glorified. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen? To him be dominion and authority and majesty and power now and forevermore. Amen.